Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 208. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. The Super Bowl is coming. February is started, and Rachel Maddow is back. But before all that, this is still America in 2023. And this is very much still a time and a place to stay vigilant. For a mother to know that their child was calling them in their need, and I was there for you, do you up and tease the live deal right now? Because I wasn't there for my son. I told, I had an, uh, I was sent someone. Then I had this really bad pain in my stomach earlier, not the one what had happened. But once I found out what happened, that was my son's pain that I was still in. And I didn't even know. For me to find out that my son was calling by day and I was only giving beats away, it was, did not even near him. You have no clue how I feel right now. No clue. We have no clue. That is Rovon Wells, the mother of murdered 29 year old Tyree Nichols. He was killed last month by Memphis police. You should know the story if you don't know it by now. The world knows the story by now. Five cops, who are also black, have been fired and charged with second-degree murder and other offenses in Nichols' beating and murder. And this week, two more Memphis cops were disciplined and three EMTs were also fired in connection with the murder. Some of the moves have been swift, I think the chief of police is setting a new standard. But the pain for Tyree's mother and for this country will never end. The murder was disgusting. It was shameful. It was deplorable. It was criminal. And for some, it may already be off their news radar. But this one cuts deep and comes on top of deep cut after deep cut after deep cut, ripping away at the fabric of our country and into the soul of our people, and revealing how much deep disinfecting still needs to be done inside our public safety systems, within our policies, and inside our police forces nationwide. Now, if you're a regular listener to this show, you know I'm not a big fan of New York City Mayor, Democrat Eric Adams. But occasionally, Adams gets it right. And this is one of those times. Let me ask you, the Chief C.J. Davis, when in my interview with her, she said that all the officers being black, it takes race off the table. Do you agree with that? Uh, no, no, I don't. Uh, I think that I understand what uh, the Chief was saying, and I think she uh, really handled this situation in a very professional way. She moved swiftly. She ensured that those officers were removed from the department. She took all the necessary steps. Uh, but I think uh, race is still on the table. 
uh, when a culture of policing historically has treated uh, those from different groups differently, uh, even when the individuals are from that same group, that culture can still exist. And we have to zero in on it, being honest about it, and making sure that we properly train police for the realities of the cities that they are policing in. Mayor Eric Adams was right there. But he isn't right often. And he gets it very much wrong right here. Uh, Memphis police is now saying they're going to disband that unit tied to the Scorpion unit tied to the beating. Do you think that was the right call? Because that's just one of the units with one of the names. I mean, the the same, you know, the same officers are still in the police department. The same mentality runs through the police department. Do you think that was the right move? And is that enough? Uh, I would never second guess a person who's on the ground. She's closest to the problem. So she's closer to the solution. Uh, Units don't create abuse abusive behavior creates abuse. You can be assigned to uniform patrol if you don't have the right mindset for public protection. And I think the nobility of being a law enforcement officer, uh, then you should not be assigned in the police department. Adams said units don't create abuse. Abusive behavior creates abuse. That's what he said. And he's dead wrong. Every unit has a unique culture. And if that culture is bad, even the best individuals inside of it will feel pressure to behave badly. Units, behavior, systems, leaders, all of it can create abuse. But unit culture is among the single most critical factors. You can create a unit with a culture of winning, or you can create a unit with a culture of war crimes. And that unit culture is built or crumbles around a clear set of values, under strong leadership, with accountability, and with care and focus. Abusive behavior persists and spreads when units are corrupt. And policing a city is a team game. And every good team has got to police itself. And good teams or units make good change. Bad units create bad change and abuse, and leave wreckage in their wake. Units do create abuse because they allow abusive behavior. Whether that unit is a platoon in the Russian military, or a division in the Memphis PD, or the leadership of the National Women's Soccer League, or a crumbling NFL team, to the second largest agency in the federal government. The Department of Veterans Affairs is a massive unit tasked with the sacred responsibility of caring for the men and women who have served and suffered as a result of their service to our country. And in many ways, that department, that unit, performs well. It saves lives, it empowers veterans, it delivers benefits. But as is well documented, the agency also has a decades-long branding problem that's grown from too many unacceptable unit failures. Failures in execution, but also failures in culture. Especially adapting its culture to meet the needs of the newest generation, and especially the needs of women. The broader military and the Department of Veterans Affairs still remains one of the most hostile units in America for women. And this week, At his monthly press conference, the VA secretary and non-veteran Dennis McDonough 
refused to improve the culture at VA. He refused to attack the culture problem at the core of that massive unit. He's been asked to do it month after month, and now year after year. And this week, he again dodged questions from reporters about changing the VA motto to gender-neutral language. He says he's committed to doing it, but he won't give a timeline. And when Great Military Times reporter Leo Shane pressed him on it, he wouldn't commit. Which is pathetic. Which is a failure. Which has now gone on since Biden was elected over two years ago. You see, on the wall of every VA hospital in America, on every website the agency runs, are the words from President Lincoln's second inaugural. To care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow, and for his orphan. Now, that's the core of what the VA is built around as a unit. But there's a problem. That motto doesn't include women or caregivers, two critical groups that the VA serves now in 2023. So the motto itself, the core value that the agency is built around, is exclusionary, and it's sexist. President Bush, Obama, Trump, none of them changed it. And after two years, McDonough and Biden haven't changed it either. Dodge, 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 deflect. This is such an easy and important thing that could have been done years ago to improve the culture across a massive unit that now serves millions of women who aren't even included in the motto on every wall. They just need to update the motto to include everyone. Change the culture to include everyone. And this is going on while the VA secretary says that since January 1st, VA has awarded 33,266 claims related to the PACT Act benefits, which is good. The PACT Act was passed recently and signed into law and will now provide benefits for millions of veterans who were exposed to Agent Orange, to burn pits, and many other toxin exposures. And it's the result of activism, decades of struggle, leadership for many folks you heard on this show, and a bunker buster of a media force that is Jon Stewart. He said to everyone, for vets listening today, apply for your benefits right now. Yeah, do that for sure. But don't worry about that exclusionary motto everywhere on the walls and the website when you do apply. Maybe it'll change before we all die of old age. Until then, it's an example of what can go wrong in unit culture. It's what happens when the culture is wrong, which is certainly true in Congress right now, especially, where the bipartisan days of that unit working together are long gone. Now, there's a unit culture of infighting, point scoring, and division that will be the new normal. If you want to see the opposite of a high-functioning team focused on one goal, just watch Washington in 2023. They won't look like the Kansas City Chiefs or the Philadelphia Eagles. They won't even look like the 8-8 eight eight hometown Washington Commanders. Congress in 2023 will look more like the 3-14 Chicago Bears or the 4-13 Arizona Cardinals, but without the excitement of a future first-round draft pick or the integrity of J.J. Watt. The unit culture in Washington is rotten. And it's driven in large part by the dysfunctional two-party duopoly. And at a time and a place where stakes have never been higher. Bye. Yeah. Bye.
breaks is high. You talking about Uniculture is defined by leaders, whether it's a football team, a first grade class, a police force, a congressional office, or a cable news network, or a country. And for more than a decade, the unit culture at one of the biggest cable news networks in America, at the most important times in our recent history, was defined by one leader. One leader whose leadership has influenced the broader culture across not just her own network, but all news media, across our politics and across our culture. One person who is trusted and sometimes hated, but always watched and deeply respected by millions of Americans of all backgrounds. She's grown into a media and cultural force of our time and is a truly important, inspiring, and iconic American. Someone who is profoundly impacting what our country was, what it is, and what it will be. And someone who's fascinating to talk to about anything, from Spiro Agnew and defense policy to the Super Bowl and finding joy in life. I'm honored to call her a friend, and she's finally back on this show to break it all down. It's the one and only Dr. Rachel Maddow. If you get to know Rachel Maddow, you know a few things. You know that she really is that nice in person. You know that she treats everyone around her with respect and with love. You know she's a damn good friend. You know she's even smarter than most people realize. And you know she works her ass off. She works harder and in a purer way than almost anyone I've ever seen. Doing any kind of work. Watching her put together a book or a show is like watching a master mason build a perfect foundation for her own house. With thoughtfulness, with precision, with sweat, with focus, with attention to detail, with curiosity, with pride, and with heart. She researches, she measures, she cuts, she builds. She puts tremendous pride and heart into anything she puts her name on. And that's just part of what makes her different and makes her special. And it's why, like so many true icons, she's now known often by only one name, Rachel or Maddow. But people refer to her like they know her or they know of her because she's now a defining voice of our time. But she's a voice that doesn't do too many interviews she's not hosting. And this one is a treat. We get into everything from Tom Brady's retirement to the state of the NFL to what she's doing now that she's not on TV every night to what she thinks are the most important parts about Ukraine. From Kirsten Cinema to Ron DeSantis to Donald Trump to Tulsi Gabbard to Wes Moore. And she even makes some predictions about the presidential election and makes a call about the Super Bowl. And all along the way, Rachel will share her uniquely brilliant 
powerful and sincere reflections and observations on life and these wild times we're all living in. She is now truly a master of her fate and a captain of her soul. And she candidly shares her journey, her thinking, her process in ways that gave me strength and I hope will give you strength too. It's a conversation that I was privileged to have and I'm even more privileged to share. Because every time we talk, Rachel makes us all smarter. And I think she makes us all better. She makes us all more thoughtful, even if you don't agree with her. Maybe especially if you don't agree with her. And in this conversation especially, she'll make all of us at least a bit happier. Dr. Rachel Maddow is back. Just for the start of February, the coldest time of the year, and maybe when we need her the most. She's a person that anybody would want on their team. And someone who makes every unit she's a part of better. Welcome to a discussion with America's professor of politics, and increasingly, our professor of so much more. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 208. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world, this is a moment I have been waiting 200 episodes for. Uh, one of my favorite voices in America, one of my favorite people to talk to, one of my favorite humans, uh, a person that is very dear to me and I think dear to America, especially in, in times like this. I am so happy, thrilled, humbled to welcome back to the program, the great and powerful Dr. Rachel Maddow. The great and powerful makes me sound like I'm very, very tiny and I'm behind a very elaborate curtain. And when you pull the curtain back, the great and powerful Maddow is actually very small and on my TV screen. So not small. <laughs> so not that. Hi, Paul. Um, how are you, man? I am so happy to talk to you. And I, I it just makes me happy. I think I think part of what I love talking about talking to you about in an environment an environment like this is like you're cool. And you bring joy to people. And I think people may not see that all the time on, on television. I know they feel it, but you, you know, you have a lot of joy and you have a, an energy that's contagious and I get happy being around you. And I know other people get happy about being around you. And my wife is like happy that I'm, I'm talking to you today. Everybody is happy. I'm talking to you today. Everybody listening is happy. So I want you to know that you bring happiness to the world. That makes, that makes me happy to hear it. I was just thinking about the fact that you and I, I mean, you and I have a lot of history and you and I have been through a lot of things, but do you realize it's been like, we're going on 20 years knowing each other and being friends? Yes. I was thinking about it too. Like yeah. before this, like I was thinking about Air America and just like walking into that fucked up weird place with like wires <laughs> hanging out of the walls and Chuck D and you and like, we're not young anymore. No. Although we're all still us. You know what I mean? Like nobody has gone through one of those like radical transformations where you're like, who is this? I don't recognize this person's values. They've done a 180. They're an apostate. They're all these. Like, I feel like there's a bunch of people who were around at that time who were kind of in our milieu have gotten really weird or who've gone like really radically different. You know, no, I won't, won't name names, but you know exactly who I'm talking about. Um, but I feel like you and I, there's a, and, and Chuck D actually mentioning him from Air America. Like we've all kind of stayed who we are. Things have changed, but I rec I would recognize you 20 years ago if I saw you now. 
I think that's true. I think that I'm, and, and you're doing so many cool things now. I wonder if anyone's going to do, I mean, I feel like it's almost like a, like a Mark Marin uh, series, but like do a show about air America. You know, I don't know if it's yeah. going to be a sitcom or a documentary or what, but like if anybody's got footage from back then, or they could write a, maybe you can write a script about it with, I don't know, Steven Spielberg or someone, but you know, <laughs> Uh, it was, it was interesting times, just that environment and who was there and who came through and who, I mean, everybody from Franken to Marin to Chuck to you, uh, and all the directions people have gone in was, it's really, was interesting. It was an interesting group and it was business in business terms. It was bizarro land. We now, I mean, we now know down the road what was going on there in business terms and it is a horror movie, but in terms of us being on the air and trying to do a media thing, I remember, I mean, when we launched, it was like, I think, it, I won't get this exactly right, but I think it was the week of Abu Ghraib. Like, I think the the first week we were on the air was the Abu Ghraib revelations. And it was obviously the year that W was up for re-election and it was, the RNC was in was in New York City, which was pretty ballsy after yep. what had happened in, in uh, on 9-11 and, you know, Giuliani and all that stuff. And uh, it was the maelstrom. And there was so much media attention on us that we were going to be the thing that changed the whole media environment. And it didn't matter that there was talk radio and Rush Limbaugh and, you know, Glenn Beck on the radio at that point and Fox News instead with, with Al Franken and Janine Garofalo on yeah. the radio, America was going to... Take up 180 uh, in its politics. And it, so there, so many of the assumptions were wrong. But what we were trying to do, and to a certain extent, what we did, I think, is is interesting in its own terms. And it was radio, like like good radio, right? And sometimes it was really fucking bad radio, but it was <laughs> but it was radio. And I think like you have this great roots, these great roots in radio. And I feel like what I'm trying to do is a lot like a next generation of radio. And I always love doing radio more than anything else. I think. I think when I was there, must have been May 2004. So we've known each other through all of that and all these iterations. And I want to get to all the things you're doing. And I will tell you as often as I can, how proud of you I am as a friend, but also how grateful I am for your wisdom and your voice. And I don't know, I, I, I always, someone said to me, what do you want to do you know, for a job? Like, I'd like to be a public intellectual. And like, I feel like that's what you have become. But let me ask you the question I ask of everyone. Hmm. Where are you, Rachel, and how are you? I am in Massachusetts, not in New York City, which is a big part of what has changed in my life since the pandemic, and that's been a good change. Um, and that is a big part of how I am, too, because I think that I have learned to embrace my introversion, hmm. um, that I, I am not a misanthrope. It's not that I don't like people, but I am happiest alone. And uh, I am happiest in particular working on my own. I have, I like to collaborate with people. I need to collaborate with people. All the work that I do requires assistance um, and requires collaboration and requires, you know, people smarter than me working with me. But when it comes down to reading and, and thinking and coming up with what I want to say about what's going on in the world, I like to be on my own. And when the pandemic changed everything work-wise, I left New York and moved to Massachusetts. And I'm occasionally still back in New York. I still do it, but this is better for me. And it has matured me and made me be more real about who I am. And spending a lot of time kibitzing with other people, particularly in the workday, is enervating to me. It drains me and doesn't feel good. And I don't do that anymore. And it means that I'm, I think, working in kind of a more potent way, if that makes sense. 
Um, so I'm good. And I get to spend more time with Susan and I get to spend more time outdoors and I get to spend more time on my own. And I like living in rural New England, you know, chopping wood and taking hikes. I mean, I, I, I can feel that evolution and I, I, I've dabbled in it myself in the last couple of years. And I know, you know, what that can do for me and especially the nature, which I think is something that was so invigorating to me and the drain of the socializing and the drain of the machine that we were all on. But I can't, I can't move off of this. You're in new England. Mm -hmm. There is big news in the world. Uh, Tom Brady is retiring. And and Who? and I can't. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not. I'm not going to let you lost just, the connection there. I, I, part of I, what I love is like <laughs> I want you to talk about shit that nobody else hears you talk about. And you talk about football. Like I think I don't know how many years it was ago you were on a show wearing an Eli Manning jersey because you lost a bet. Tom Brady beat everybody except the Giants. But but like really, I mean, I'm I'm curious. Like, what do you think about the retirement of Tom Brady, Rachel Maddow? I just want to talk about the fact that that bet has been paying off for you for more than a decade now. Every year, the anniversary of me wearing that shirt on TV mysteriously pops up on my phone. It's like I didn't do it this year. <laughs> I didn't do it this year. Facebook reminds me every year, but I didn't even send it to you this year. The bet was not you will wear a Giants jersey on TV. And then for the rest of your natural life, I will lord it over you as if Eli Manning is still the Giants quarterback. That, but it's, it's all right. It's all right. I'll, I'll someday pay you back. It's fine. Um, listen, the Patriots, it turns out, needed Tom Brady in order to win. It turns out Bill Belichick wasn't the secret sauce on his own. That to me is somewhat um, comforting because I feel like... Uh, there was a lot of myth-making around people's individual skills, and it turns out you needed the collaboration. Um, I will say Tom Brady going to Tampa and, like, remember when he got busted, like, for going to a closed playground? He was, like, working out in a Florida playground when all the playgrounds were closed, and he was like, I'm Tom Brady. And I was like, oh, Tom, you've become Florida man. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I mean... I wish him all the best. I'm sorry about his personal life. It was a little overdue. H had he made his point after his one Super Bowl and not embarrassed himself thereafter, probably everybody would have been better off. But it's not like I'm, uh, don't cry for me, Argentina, you know? Can I ask you, I mean, the NFL is always kind of a part of the culture. And, but I think even more so now with that, with DeMar Hamlin getting hurt, um, I mean, the popularity is still very high. Um, what are your thoughts on, the NFL and the intersection with America as someone who studies America and its violent tendencies and its political drama. Um, and so what do you think of the NFL? And, and I got to ask your prediction. I mean, with the dreaded Eagles going up against the chiefs, I don't know if any other show is going to get Rachel Maddow's prediction on the Super Bowl, but yeah. Maddow on the NFL. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, I watch both pro football and college football. I, um, I'm not an expert by any means. I'm actually not even a, like, I'm not as much of a fan as I used to be. Like, I'm not, like, I'm not watching with a rooting interest the way that I used to be. I think in part because you get, you kind of lose your, anybody who you invest in, you end up kind of losing your idols, right? Like nobody mm -hmm. ever ends up being worth the adoration that we give them as fans. But I definitely still enjoy the sport and increasingly, like, in a crescendo that increases every single day, I feel guilty about it because we are being entertained by these 
men who are compensated for what they do and who love what they do, injuring themselves for our pleasure. And uh, it's, I can't, I'm not going to lie and say that I don't watch. I do, but I feel, I feel terrible about it. I mean, you, you, we've talked about this a little bit in terms of thinking about your boys and football and how important football was to you, not as a fan, but as a player. And I, I do sort of feel like it's something that in not too, in the not too distant future, we're going to look back and be like, wow, that was, that was a barbaric thing that we enjoyed as a country. Mm. You know, do you remember that scene? Did you watch Mad Men? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was one scene, I think kind of early on in Mad Men where um, Don and his wife and their kids are out having a picnic like on a gentle, like rolling slope, like in the grass. And they're having this picnic and like the normal, like Mad Men character development thing happens during the scene of the picnic. And then when they're done, the the wife picks up the picnic blanket on which they've just had the blanket and just shakes it and all the trash goes onto the hill. And then she folds up the blanket, gets back in the car. And it's like, it's not even the point of the scene, but it's like this horror moment, like, oh my God, that's all your trash in this pristine place. I feel like that's, by the time you and I are dead, that will be how most Americans think about our habit now in 2023 of watching football. That's fascinating. What do you think? Do you disagree? Um, you know, the parallel I've been drawing, and I, I wrote a piece for CNN about it a bit, is, is there's a really unique devolution in America where football has become a unique part of a subset of our culture, very much in the same way the military has. So it's like, if you're around football, it's because of a certain couple of things, right? Like most likely because someone in your family played, right? Or you're in a community that focuses on it, or you view it as a place that provides you with options, or you have a sense of adventure, the closest you can come to combat without, you know, fighting, right? Mm -hmm. And there's, I think, a very underestimated component. I think it's the ultimate team game in, in American sports, right? There is this, this, need to work together with 11 other people on the field at the same time. So all of that gets baked into it. And, and I think it's just, it's the danger of it that, you know, and you still take on and you have a discussion with yourself and your family it is, is a lot like a conversation I've been having with myself and a lot of parents about the military. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're very different in many ways, but, but it's kind of like either you get it or you don't. And if you don't, you need someone to take you through it. Like I can't, if people never played football and never been around football, they won't understand how it changed my life and how it maybe it saved my life. And yeah, maybe I got a head injury, but maybe I didn't end up in jail. Right. And, and there is a, a cultural component of it um, that it, again, the military is kind of a spectator sport now too. We all stand on the sidelines and cheer for them and cheer for them when they come back, but we're not on that field and they're not taking the head injuries. So it's been really a fascinating. Um, is the risk of injury then implicit to the value of it? Like, is it not, do you, the, the team, the team factor that you're talking about there, yeah. injury isn't inherent in that you're actually less able to do your work, your role in the team. If you're hurt, right. You get taken out. Yeah. Um, but you're saying that the, the risk is sort of scratch. That's one of the important. It's, it's, it's one of the pillars. Pressure. It's like yeah. jumping off a cliff. It's like, you know, it's skydiving. It's like, Hey, I know this is dangerous. But for me, it's worth it, right? And, 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 and if you haven't gone through that calculation yourself, it's hard for people to say, you know, how could you ever let your son do that? Or how could you ever do that yourself? And everybody makes their own choice, right? right. And, and you have to figure, I mean, tennis is dangerous. I mean, there are other things that are dangerous. It's just a level of danger that you're willing to entertain. Driving fast is a danger. I mean, there's a lot of, and I don't mean to make, um, to, to, to dismiss it, 
But I do think it cuts to this really unique part of American culture because football yeah. is so uniquely American and it's so big and it's so fantastic and it's so profitable. Um, it's it's a reflection of our times. I think when you say, hey, you know, we're shaking that blanket out. I think it's also a time capsule in this moment in America. Yeah. I mean, or it's infinite or we're going to keep doing this for another 100 years. And <laughs> yeah. right? yeah. I mean, yeah. the, the, the what's interesting to me, though, I mean, what you were just talking there about the value of it and, and being around it and it being being a source of value to so many people who participate in it. That, I think, is really interesting in terms of thinking about whether or not you want to do it or you want your kids to do it. But there's a different moral calculus for those of us who aren't playing, who are just watching, who are just part of the ad demographic that makes it a multi-billion dollar industry. Like, yeah. I'm not I'm not contributing in any way to the positive things that are coming out of it other than making it possible for people to get salaries. Kind of like of most Americans in politics. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> like paying taxes, watching MSNBC once in a while, and maybe I vote, but I, you know, bitch about it all the time. I'm really passionate about how I feel about Joe Biden, but you know, am I am I actually involved? I don't know. I mean, I, th I think we could we could probably do a whole series on this, but I think yeah. I think it's a fascinating discussion, especially in this moment of time where politics and sports are so intertwined in healthy ways, but also in really unhealthy ways. So yeah. Media is, we talked about Air America, we're talking about sports. You're at the forefront of a lot of discussions, but part of what you talked about is how your position has changed and your perspective has changed. Um, what are you doing now that you're not in America's living room, you know, five days a week? I'm so happy for you. I'm like, wow, it's just like to not have to go to anything is must be liberating, right? Yeah. But um, I know you're, I, I was reading and I know that Ultra was just, picked up with Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner, Kushner, and this is amazing. You're working on these projects, but um, can you talk about, you know, we're not gonna live forever. You're making decisions about how to make the most impact or give you the most value, however you would, we would structure it, but it's coinciding with this next generation of media. The future of media is not cable news. Right. It's, it's what you're doing. So can you talk about what you've learned and what you're thinking there in this next chapter of your life? You're kind of like, I don't know if you're Madonna or Lady Gaga, you just keep reinventing yourself. But I'm you're definitely not Madonna or Lady but you're, Gaga. But, but you're ahead. But you're <laughs> clearly ahead of the country and ahead of the media. So what do you see? And what are you thinking? It's interesting, though. I'm not I'm not I didn't make these changes because I see something going on in the business and I'm trying to get ahead of that because I want to be the master of the next iteration of me. Like I'm not that wasn't the thinking at all. Um, but I definitely I need I, I hit a constraint in terms of whether or not I could stay on TV five days a week. Um, for a, you know, for a for a 15th year and for a 16th year, um, just because of the way I work, like I just topped out. Um, and it's just it's a, my physical health, you know, I, I think, you know, I've talked to you a lot about my back problems that started in 2017. And that's, that's pretty core stuff, um, pun intended. Mm -hmm. And um, so that and also, I just, I felt like I the 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 thing I always come back to is that I want to be proud of myself. I want to be proud of my work. And being on the daily production grind, um, I just felt like I was getting dumber, like mm -hmm. my bandwidth was shrinking. Like I was less able to think complex thoughts because I needed to think short thoughts that I could get on TV by a certain time every day. Um, and that was fine for a really long time. Like I, I don't have any regrets about anything that I did in all the years that I was five days a week. But when MSNBC gave me the opportunity to think like 
recognize that that box is closing, think about some other way to contribute. We didn't initially come up with what I'm in now. It took a little figuring. Like for a while, I was going to stop. I was going to take long breaks and then come back and it was going to be four days a week and sometimes five days a week and sometimes often together. And I was going to start and stop and start and stop. That was kind of the original plan. What we settled on is I'll be here Monday nights. I'll do the regular Rachel Maddow show that you have been getting from me for years, but you'll only get it one day a week. I will be there for other big news events. You know, State of the Union is coming up. I'll be there for State of the Union, for debates, for primaries, for all the January 6th hearings and stuff. Um, but other than that, I'm going to work on projects that take a longer horizon. Um, and so ultra, the Ultra podcast was a year's worth of work and it wasn't less work at all, actually, than being on the air five days a week. I was working seven days a week on that. Like Susan didn't see me for months at a time while I was working on Ultra. It was really hard. It wasn't that I don't want to do less work. I just wanted to do less of the exact same kind of work every day. Mm. Um, so it's not that hard work is a problem. It's the grind of yeah. grinding yourself out through one gear that you're in all the time. So that's what I'm doing. I mean, I've got, I'm working on podcasts. I'm writing a book. I've got um, a TV show that I, a scripted TV show that's uh, that I'm developing. That's actually just been gone through a really big milestone and we're like right in the pilot and that's great. And Bagman's going to be a movie and Ultra's going to be a movie. And uh, I got a bunch of other stuff. There's some documentary stuff I'm interested in. I, there's a couple of books that I want to adapt in one way or another. I've got some weird ideas about maybe doing that in kind of podcast style, serialized audio from books. And so I got, I've got a million ideas and I'm working on 12 things at once plus a weekly TV show now. Mm. And that is a better life mm. for me. Yeah. And it's, it's awesome for everyone who enjoys what you do. I mean, it, you're, what you're producing, I would argue is higher quality, more impactful. Like when ultras, I, I loved ultra. I was sending you texts about it. I mean, when it's in your ear and it's immersive and it's hot, super high quality. Mm -hmm. right? It was really super high quality and you were captured. It wasn't MSNBC background noise while people are on the Peloton or whatever it is, right? Like <laughs> it, was, it was immersive and your books are like that. And I mean, if MSNBC and your partners are smart, they'd say, hey, here's everything you need. Do whatever you want and just keep kicking out stuff because it's 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 a thought leadership production studio that you've created, right? And you're going to reach more people, I would think, in in film and in podcasts and in the books um, than in cable news. And and like, it, I'm glad for it because the stuff you're putting out is it's hits. I mean, I got to go back to, you know, recording artists, like you, you've evolved and now you're cranking out hits. And, and I think what I'm so um, satisfied about as, as, as a consumer of what you do is the intersection consistently of national security. Like, mm -hmm. and the stuff that you and I have been talking about for 20 years, you've never lost that. And sometimes, especially in the last couple of years, I feel like I'm on a mountaintop saying to everybody, hey, national security is everything, right? And I think the country loses that sometimes in part because of the lack of connection to the military, distance from things like Ukraine. So there's a thread of that that I think is, 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 is essential um, to your knowledge and your explanation, especially to audiences that aren't always exposed to that stuff. So mm -hmm. it's really, it's exciting to watch. And, and I think it's really contributing tremendously to the country and, and the country's collective knowledge. I mean, the thing, the, when you say we're going to, you know, reach more people, I mean, I hope that it's going to reach a lot of people, but I, I also really like, <laughs> I really like the idea of just reaching people in different ways too, right? Yeah. Like, Ultra, I think the story of Ultra is 
like it, it has value as history. Like there, there is actually some original his, historical research there that advances like that in a kind of academic way. But 99.9% of the people listening to it are not listening to it because they want a history lesson. It's because it's a like cracking story. Yeah. And that's a great way to reach people. I mean, same thing with the, with Batman. Like, is there any native interest in the fate of Spiro Agnew? No. However, you're going to freaking fracking love the story of these young prosecutors who bit off way more than they could chew and ended up changing history in a way that we completely forgot about and that's super important and it's a rollicking thing and so i in the same way that i've done cable i've tried to do cable news in kind of a weird way like i've tried to always be a little surprising like where is she going with this why is she talking about when a meteor hit the earth i thought this was about the kansas abortion referendum right like i've always tried to um grab people in 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 unexpected and novel ways and i'm that's just this kind of expands it that's why i called my company surprise inside which is like all right like you never exactly know what you're gonna get like you're gonna open up because you know there's something here but you don't know what it's gonna be till you get there like that's i mean you and i've been talking about this as a you know narrative strength and and um, bringing people something of value that whole time. You're such a fantastic and passionate student of history. And then I think you're at your best when you're teaching. Like you're te- Hey, look at this thing I found. Let me show you what it's all about and my excitement and why I'm so excited and how it connects with everything else and why you should care, why you should tell your friends, right? And, and by the way, here's what else might be coming down the pipe because I've tried, at least in my show, especially to talk about not just what's happening, but what's happening next. Yep. Especially for those of us that have been close to it in experience and in study and in practice, um, you know, Tony Romo has been getting beaten up a lot. But, you know, I say, you know, we have an opportunity to be kind of a Tony Romo of politics to say, hey, we understand politics. We understand the culture. Here's what might be coming next. Mm-hmm. And you're you're better at that than, than anybody. And I think there's an Oscar. The only, the only way to, the only way to tell what's coming is to know what's happened before, right? Like, has this experiment been tried before? Yes, it has. Here's what happened the last time we tried it. Like, that's the only, I mean, that's what Tony Romo brings to the analysis. I mean, I mean, he brings a lot (laughs) you don't like as well, but he drives me crazy. And and look, there's going to be so many chapters in your story and seeing you on stage getting an Oscar with Steven Spielberg and Tony (laughs) Kushner is totally within the realm of this. And one day, you know, I've said this to you, I think you're one of the more important leaders of our time, someone will play you in a movie and there will be your story. But in the meantime, you're taking us through all of this and I got to get you on Ukraine. I mean, because you're not covering it every day. We've been diving into it hard on this show, talking to a lot of people who are there. Um, I mean, maybe I'll just ask you, what, what do you think is most important right now? And what is, and what is, what, what maybe are folks missing? I mean, I don't want to put myself forward as an expert on this. And so, you know, take this with a grain of salt in terms of me as basically a lay news consumer on this issue. I don't have any expertise on it, but it seems to me, particularly looking at history that may inform some of this, that the, the important thing here is not that Ukraine is saved from losing. The important thing here is that Russia loses. Mm-hmm because this was not Ukraine's idea. This was not a meeting of two clashing forces. This was not, you know, Ukraine provoking Russia when they knew they ought not to, but blah, blah, blah. You know, like the the Russian mindset, like people who were like, oh, we need to facilitate peace talks here. Really? 
I don't know, because it kind of seems like Ukraine was minding its own business and Russia came in and stomped into their house and started setting things on fire. So there's, there's not like a negotiation between the homeowner and the home invader at that point. So the the outcome has to be specific to Russia. And um, we need to do our best to save and and to, to save the Ukrainian people to the extent that they can be saved and protected and to help the Ukrainian government and military stand up what they need to do to take care of their own people. But Russia needs to lose um, because otherwise the lesson of this is that Putin can Putin can keep doing this. This is It's not like this is his mm. first invasion and it won't be his last. And so that's, I mean, that is, I think, the, the core level at which America needs to approach this. And that means not, you know, arming Ukraine to make sure the war doesn't end with Russia winning. Like you can't give them enough support so that they don't lose. You have to give them enough support so that Russia loses. This is where I love talking to you because this is the Rachel Maddow that I know. And, and I feel like if America said liberal Rachel Maddow on MSNBC, right, they, they would not have anticipated that response. And I think just to put a pin on it, the left in this country is missing that, is missing mm. you and missing you specifically. If you had been on every night, which I'm not requesting or, or, or wishing, I think it would have had a dramatic difference on how the left in particular views that discussion. Like, I've been talking about how, yes, we've, we've spent a lot of money, but it's been roughly 5% of our defense budget, and we've taken out 50% of their military capacity. Like we could, we're, we're taking out half of one, if, if not our, 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 our most prominent enemy, right? And the, the calculations around defeating Russia and saying it in those terms is really important. And, and I'm just, I'm so thankful that you shared that because I, I just, I, think I, it, feel, I feel like I think the, it's the shortcoming of, the shortcoming on the left isn't a softness about Russia, though. I think the shortcoming on the left is focusing on this at all, about whether or not this is important and whether or not this is something that Americans ought to be engaged in rather than this being treated as something that's a, a specialized policy matter that we don't engage in. I mean, I feel like it's the left is not being so much dumb about it as the left is being absent from the discussion. Yeah. But I think, I think mainstream Democrats who are engaged on this are generally right on this. Like, I think, well, I mean, I don't know if you've talked to Senator Chris Murphy or heard him talk about it or, yeah. or Congressman Jim Himes also from Connecticut about it. Like they're doggone, like I would, I mean, I, I, I think that they've been, they've exhibited good leadership on this kind of stuff and they're sort of emblematic of where the democratic party is on it. So I don't, I don't feel like the left is blowing it so much as just not focusing on it. But no, I, I think, I think you're I think you're right, except I would also define the left as not just the moderates and the Democrats. There's the everything else. And I think a lot of it is, frankly, like the MSNBC audience. I don't think they're as well versed when you're not there on national security issues. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm still one of the only guys who's, or gals who's been in, in the service that, that has a show of any kind. Right. Like there aren't too many. You got Pete Hegseth. Right. And you got Tulsi doing her thing. But there aren't too many national security people that are anchoring shows that are driving that perspective, that are reporting, you know, and, and guiding the national conversation. I mean, I'm looking forward to the day we've got, you know, a post 9-11 bet in the White House, but even on the evening news, you know, to guide that discussion and that perspective, I think is missing. And, and that's something you and I have talked about a lot, just the, the, the cultural competence that's lacking in the media, but also has been on a generation on the left that now is changing with the newer generation. But there's this, this, this bulk in the middle that was after Vietnam and before 9-11 that just doesn't have the understanding. 
Yeah. And and you were a bridge on that. So um, I do think that the reason that it's not developing, though, is because it's not seen as central to the news. Like in a, like people. How is that? Me, and that's the, that's the part that I'm like, that, stop it's there. Stories, we can't go it, any further. Right? It's not necessarily how like people ask me sometimes about like my process in terms of developing what's going to be on the show and who we're going to book and what we're going to talk about. And I always tell people, and I, I feel like it never really sinks in, but like the hard part is not figuring out what's important about X story and how to, what, what to tell the viewers about it and what person to book and what conversation to have in the interview. The hard part, and therefore the valuable part, the interesting part is deciding that it's a story at all deciding that it ought to be on the news, deciding that it is worthy of discussion, new, interesting, compelling, something that has an impact on the world and ethics and our relationship with the afterlife. You know what I mean? Whatever whatever yeah. it is that makes you think something has, has value. And national security waxes and wanes in terms of whether or not we see it as, you know, the equivalent of farm policy, right? Or, you know, some other sort of mostly technocratic thing, or whether we see it as a, some, something about which we have a national debate. I mean, that's what my first book was about, right? Like, yeah. do we even see decisions about the military as things about which we make political decisions? The the drift in American policy has been so that we don't. It just happens on its own on autopilot and we never discuss it. That's that's the important that's the important thing, I think. So the the drift is happening all over politics. Um I I know you're reluctant to make predictions, but as we think about ultra and we think about this moment and we think about what's next, um, you know, I, it's my view that it's Biden and Trump, un, unless one of them gets sick, dies or gets arrested. Um, that's at least where my money is, if I have to bet. Um, and if those Trump, three things seem very likely, right? Sick, sickness, death and arrest. They yes. all seem like very much on yeah. the table. Yeah. yeah. On, you know, and to include Biden, like, you know, he's not young. If, if, if his health takes takes a tumble. This whole thing goes sideways, and then there is a total disruption that maybe the country isn't ready for, and maybe each party isn't ready for. But um, I guess I want to try to figure out how to make this most important. What do you see as the most important part of that? Trump ain't dead, in my view. And -hmm. I think there's been an overestimation of his demise. And I feel like as a national security matter, um, he is still, in my view, a threat. And in my view, a threat to 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 this country in, in so many ways. And I've started to call it the American insurgency. After January 6th, I think it went to ground. I think it still exists. I think it's the number one national security priority. So I, I connect the two in a way that I don't think most people do. But what is your prediction for how this is going to shake out in, in the next couple of months and even years? I mean, I don't, I'm a bad predictor. I mean, I really thought we were going to have President McCain. In 2000, in 2008, um, so which I think you remember at the time. I'm glad we didn't make a bet about that. I'm a, I'm I'm terrible at making predictions, but I I share your view on on Trump. I think that his um, demise has been uh, oversold, and it's true that you know I saw this morning in the news. I saw this week in the news that his fundraising out of the gate after he made his presidential announcement wasn't that strong, but it wasn't nothing. Um, and I, you know, the fact remains that at this point in the cycle in 2016, there were lots of Republicans who had declared and were running at this point, it's only him. And the reason it's only him is because people don't want to run against him. I mean, that that's real, that, that matters. I also think the idea that there's going to be a Democrat running who's not Joe Biden, again, in the absence of something dramatic happening, I think it's going to be Joe Biden. I think that he's, I think, 
we can argue this, and I'm sure lots of people will take issue with me saying this, but I think that he has performed very well as a president in his first term in terms of what he's been able to deliver, substantive legislation and policy that makes a difference for people. So, you know, I think on the basis of that alone, he's likely to be the the nominee if he if he runs and uh, and again, barring anything weird. So I don't know. My sense on Ron DeSantis on the Republican side who gets all the air that's not devoted to Trump is, again, I will be proven wrong about this, I'm sure, but he feels a little bit like 2023's Bobby Jindal. <laughs> Remember when uh. Bobby Jindal was going to be the, or like 2016, 2015's Marco Rubio. Remember when Marco Rubio was going to run mm. the table? And it's like, mm. there is something. there is something to be said for DeSantis being just a personal disappointment. Like you hear about him in a way that makes him seem like he's going to be, he's going to like have this incredible gravitas. And then when he like walks up to the microphone and starts talking, like it's kind of a Jared Kushner thing. Remember Jared Kushner's first, yeah. first press conference at the White House? He's like this power behind the throne and he's a White House advisor. And who is this guy? And who are these ties and this crazy stuff with his family and Chris Christie and his dad going to prison? And who is this Jared Kushner? And he walks up to the microphone for his first press conference and he goes, Hello, my name is Jared Kushner. You're like, oh God. This and everybody says, everybody said, that's what he sounds like? That's what he it's, sounds like? It's I still have that same reaction yeah. to Ron DeSantis. He he gets like he swell he swells yeah. up to the microphone in his big weird it's Philly fitting, like it's his true. his mascot suit. And um then he opens his mouth and you're like, oh, state legislature from the 1980s. Wow, okay. Like he just doesn't. I don't know, but I'll be. I think that's true. And I think, you know, but if he was smart, he would wait till Trump dies or till Trump is is out of the picture, because if you take on Trump now, you pay a price. Right. And I think everybody is going to find that out now. And so if I were strategizing on his behalf, I'd say, wait till Trump is out, dead or in jail. That might take a couple of years. But then you're you know, you're you're the heir, the heir, the heir apparent Um, now. Now, he's not that smart. And he, yeah. so he might try it, right? And that's the he part has no charisma saying. at all. He has no yeah. personal attraction. I mean, right. he's the he's the, the you know like the little magnet with the iron filings. Yeah. Like he's like turn the magnet like, around. Yeah. Like, but I also think it's possible that you know Trump could get the nomination. Trump could not get the nomination and then run anyway. Like I mean, this <laughs> this is where I think you know we're talking about independence a lot, and I've been diving into this movement. I think it's full of potential for good and for evil. Right. Like the independent energy is there. And we've had Andrew Yang and Christy Ty Whitman and Kinzinger and so many others. And I do think, you know, Tulsi Gabbard is now playing with this fire. She wants to be she's well, playing with it. And she's got, you know, a, a, a growing media base and she may try to run as an independent. It may be a small thing, but they're, I look at them as, as <laughs> I can't believe you're talking about Tulsi Gabbard. As a I real have thing. to because, because she I was a real as, thing. And then she turned into Lyndon LaRouche, dude. I mean, but I, but I view them as, I view them differently. Uh, I, view, I don't view them as they, as, as they have to win the Super Bowl or nothing. I view them as armies. Like they can still cause damage without winning, right? And if Trump only has a couple million people, he can fuck up our whole government. He can fuck up our whole country. He can undermine our national security. So I view it that way. It's not just whether or not he becomes president or not. Yeah. And so that's why I track all these pieces on no, the chess I think board. it's right. And, and, and I raised the co concept of Lyndon LaRouche advisedly. Yeah. I mean, that's a that was an electoral, that had electoral impact. It's not like Lyndon LaRouche was ever going to get elected to anything. Right. But that movement, that cult, destructive 
movement had an impact in other races and in terms of the way electoral politics has been constructed and in terms of chasing normal people out of politics by making it actually scary, a scary place to be and a dangerous place to be in a, in a very um, in a very base level sense. And, you know, in the same way that, listen, when George Wallace ran in 68, right, the the importance of that has always been measured in terms of what that cost the Republican Party in terms of what that cost the Democrats and the Republicans. And when the when the two parties were realigning around the South, when he locked up all of those states. But the for me, the fascinating thing about George Wallace is what his campaign became. The 68 George Wallace campaign evolved into some of the most violent ultra right um, fascist revolutionary radicalism we've ever had in this country. And it's sort of a history that's never been told in mainstream ways is one of the things I'm working on right now. But you're right, it has these insurgent, particularly violent movements um, when they are adjacent to electoral politics. They don't necessarily produce electoral wins, but they can produce a lot of electoral losses for people outside those movements. And they can create, they can sort of metastasize into violent movements and otherwise destructive um, things that do change our politics. It's it's real. And I, I think the prospect of, of Trump somehow not surviving the Republican process and and running outside the system there's no sense no chance in which that puts him back in the white house but it could could blow up the two-party system in a way that's unpredictable to that point it's independent americans we've been exploring this this question that i have now called a movement and i think it is a movement you're a student of movement politics you're a student of history in america you know, I, I've lived and studied and, and led in the veterans movement for 15 years. Now I've jumped into this new movement that, that I do. I, I view it as a movement. I see a lot of small timers and old timers and a lot of clashing, but a lot of opportunity. How do you view it in this moment in time where Kirsten Cinema is now probably going to be an independent mansions playing with this? You know, you've got Andrew Yang starting the forward party. How do you evaluate um, the opportunity or the strength of this movement and or movements to disrupt the two-party duopoly? You're going to, we're definitely going to disagree on this, which is um, out of love um, and out of mutual respect, we can have this fight. I think in um, almost all of the cases that you've described, almost all of the people you've name-checked, um, the flirting with or embracing of the independent label and the abandonment of whatever previous party in almost every case, not everyone, but almost everyone is the product of delusions of grandeur, is that people are used to being told you're amazing and you're singularly important. And this isn't a football game. This is a tennis match and you're Roger Federer and nobody can beat you. And <laughs> the people in power get treated that way and start to believe that about themselves. And, you know, you see, remember in, in 2016 when there were 17 Republicans running for president and you just see it. Like I went and saw people talk in person in New Hampshire, which is my favorite, one of my favorite things to do new, living in New England. I always try to melt into the, you know, please don't know I'm here. Like try to melt into the background and just watch people. <laughs> but you get a sense pretty soon of like, people's sense of themselves and their sense of their skills, the sense of their importance, the sense of their charisma running into the granite wall that is a bunch of New Hampshire voters who really don't care. Um, and it's it's a good process. <laughs> it's a, it is a healthy process. But I think a lot of what happens when people say like, I don't need this party, this party is just holding me back. People just want me unfettered. 
actually, no, people liked that you were able to carry your state for that party and vote for stuff that people broadly associate with the party that you represent. And so if you want to go be a you know, horse trader about your own value because you want to be the deciding vote on everything in a way that's unpredictable and that makes everybody pay attention to you, then you get to be the star of the Joe Manchin show. But there isn't any broader role for you in that than that in, in politics. Hmm. That's what I yeah. think. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think we disagree in a lot of this. I, I just, what I continue to feel and sense and believe is that there's a group of people that believe in country over party. Mm -hmm. and and want an alternative or alternatives and it's not that they want you know something else they want none of the above they just want to be you know free agents they want to be unaffiliated and I, this is the argument i had with andrew yang i said the solution in two parties is not another party run by you mm -hmm. it, we, we don't want to be in any party and and i think that that is different than you know a self-appointed king or queen of, of the independence but I think there is an opportunity for someone to speak to those values, however oh. they're defined, however they're branded. Right. And that could be Trump, who says it in a bad way, or it could be The Rock. I mean, I keep using that as an example. Right. But there are, you know, uh, transformative figures who can bust the the the, the, the structure a, a Zelensky, you know, in a different place would be an example. And, and I, I think it's a matter not so much of tactics and even process, but of leadership. And like that, the, the leader who decides to be that one or those 10 or those 50 I think have an opportunity to disrupt this in a, in the next couple of years. But I th I think I think what you're talking about doesn't require transformative change. It just means sort of rebranding what it is to be a swing voter, right? To say sure. I'm a voter who doesn't register with either party. I think I should be able to vote in either primary, and so I should advocate for that in terms of how my state allocates primary uh, or sets up primary rules. But I want to vote for the best person. Sometimes it's going to be a Republican. Sometimes it's going to be a Democrat. And it's also the recipe for people once they're in office, even if they are in one of the two parties, to make cross-party appeals, right? Look at the new governor of Pennsylvania who ran against an insane person who was running to make Pennsylvania an insane place. And sort of not surprisingly, I think the Democrat won and he won big. But now as the new governor of Pennsylvania, as a Democrat, he's spending all of his initial time as a Democrat trying to make common cause with Republicans in a place where there are, you know, technocratic, sane, common ground kind of places to move forward. Like that to me doesn't doesn't require an, an, anything new about thinking about the parties. It just requires people being big hearted and self-confident about their role, that they don't need to do things that are knee jerk partisan. They're about um, independent values in action. Mm. Right. And having somebody labeled independent doesn't doesn't matter that much if you if you if you sort of treat country over party as your as your operating principle. Mm. I think there's a fascinating and I think maybe incredibly important discussion happening about redefining patriotism, right? And, and that's where I think some of these leaders are trying to do it. And you and I were talking, and I, I, I do have to let you go at some point to do all <laughs> the amazing things you need to do. But you and I were talking about how you were at, uh, guest number eight on this show, and we're 208. So number one was Willie Geist. Number two was Rob Sarah. Number three was Ron Perlman. Number four was Peter Berg. Number five was Sarah Jessica Parker. Number six was Agent Pooh. Number seven was you. Number eight was Tom Colicchio. Number nine was Zainab Salvi. And number 10 was Wes Moore. Ah, Mr. Who, Governor. Who I think is also redefining patriotism. And I'm going to put a marker down. I'm going to say he could be president in six years. 
<laughs> and I think it could be him against DeSantis. We used to say for a long time, I used to say it was going to be Westmore against Eric Greitens one day. Hmm. Now it could be Westmore for Westmore versus versus Ron DeSantis. Um, I think this guy's coming. I know him. He's a friend. I support him. But I think it's happening so fast that people don't even see it coming. Yeah. And I think it's been brewing for a long time. It's not, I'm, I'm going to give him shit. It didn't like he just all of a sudden appeared, I'm going to be governor. I mean, this is a thing that's been happening that is West for a long time. And he's 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 got a magic that I've never seen before. And I just want to ask you, given all the other stuff we're talking about, him, what do you yeah. see in him and his potential? I, I totally agree with you. I, I agree with you a thousand percent. And now he is in a job where he has to deliver right? This is a governing job. And part of what happened in Maryland politics before Wes got into the governor's mansion is that the two-party divide kind of broke there a little bit with Larry Hogan, right? right. Um, and his, you know, arguably, arguably, you know, positive, viewed positively in terms of how he performed as governor. He definitely distanced himself from the rest of his party, particularly from Trump. Um, I don't think Hogan himself is a, is a real, is a, is a potent challenger, um, to Trump. And I don't, I don't think Hogan goes to national office. I mean, we'll see, but that break in, in political, in a, in blue state Maryland around Hogan, I think actually creates a lot of room to maneuver for Wes in terms of how Wes, like, like <laughs> he's my buddy <laughs> for governor Moore as he is. He's on MSNBC a lot in the last 10 years. <laughs> I mean, and, I, and I've been following his career yeah, for, yeah. for more than 10 years and he's, he has to deliver in a way that works for the people of Maryland. And yeah. when crises arise and when scandals arise, he has to handle them in a way that doesn't just preserve his magic, but that shows that he's a good man who can handle things adeptly and his who the country would be well served by him having even bigger things to manage. Mm -hmm. And biography alone can't get you there. Um, and uh, I, I do think that he's incredibly, incredibly promising, but he's got to focus not on what happens after the governorship. He needs to focus on being a freaking fracking fantastic governor in a way that earns it and proves it. And he has, and he has the space to do that, I think. Mm. So we'll see. We will see. And, and I think it'll be, it'll be fun to watch. I think there's a, like we, we started with you talking about positivity. There's an infectious positivity around West that just feels good and makes mm -hmm. people feel good. And I think everybody really needs that right now. A lot of folks are beaten up and tired and frustrated and looking for hope and, and change. And it's, it's got a hope and change on, you know, for a next generation that I think is really powerful. I, I, I'm going to ask you if you can stick around for three or four quick questions for our Patreon members who make this happen. But I want to ask you a final question that comes from my wife. Ah. Okay, who you know adores you. Um, uh, who I, who it is mutual, mutual and, adoration. And, um, she, you know, she also, um, I think, like many people, draws strength from you. And it's been a hard time for everybody in the last couple of years. I think that we don't talk about it enough as Americans. We don't talk about it enough as leaders. It's been really hard for me. It's been hard for my family. It's obviously harder for people in Ukraine and other places, but it's been hard for the world. And my wife asked me to ask you, what's bringing you joy these days? Hmm, that's a great question. You know, I, I have, I'm, I took a leap um, when I made this change in my job, right? Like I had the best job in America, arguably, the best job in media for sure. Um, editorial freedom, the best staff that has ever worked on any TV show in the history of TV shows. Um, 
the uh, an, an an unchanging hour of prime real estate to do with as I wished in a way that was well supported and well rewarded. And I chose to give that up and do something different. And um, that talking about cliff diving earlier in our discussion, that was the off the cliff moment. And um, I can't say that that was a joyful experience, but I take deep satisfaction from having made a considered decision to make a change and not stayed with the safe thing to do something new. And the thing that I most value is the editorial freedom to choose stories that I want to tell and to tell them the way that I want. And I have retained that while making my life better and getting to spend more time with Susan, which is actually the point of my life. This is the reason that I am on earth is to be with Susan Nicola, my partner. And so it's not exactly joy because it, it took a lot of adrenaline to get there, but um, it's a deep, it's a deep real satisfaction. And I feel like it made me grow up a lot. Um, and I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy and I'm trying to trying to stay healthy and I'm trying to be as good a partner to Susan as I can. And I'm trying to be good at my job. You are all those things. And um, I, I am inspired to be around you and to witness you. And I think there's a selfishness in the country. Like the country wanted more of you. Like, don't, you know, it's like when Jon Stewart left, very different. Like, don't leave us. We need you. Help us through this. But I think um, not only do you seem happier, but I think what you're doing is more important for all of us. Like the work is is so much more impactful. The work is so much bigger. And, and folks don't always see that because they're not in the sauce with you. But I am so already impressed and grateful for the contributions you're making and, and even more excited about what's to come. Um, because I think part of your gift is a vision for what what is what is important and what needs to happen next. And there's a tremendous selflessness about the way you do it. Um, and your your contribution is is tremendous and just everlasting. Um, and I adore you and I'm grateful for you. People don't say it enough. Thank you for all you do for this country. I think when patriotism has been fucking mangled in the last couple of years, I know your patriotism and you are redefining it. And I am mm. grateful for that. So thank you. Please. Can I bottle you and just put you in a locket and just hold you right here? And so that like when I'm feeling doubtful, I can just look at that. Cause you are very, you are kinder to me than I deserve, but I love you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Not, not at all. Okay. Uh, you didn't make a prediction. Who's going to win chiefs or, or Eagles? Uh, I don't, I think, in my gut, I think the Eagles are going to win. And the reason I think the Eagles are going to win, because I feel like the Eagles are trench warfare. And I feel like the Chiefs are fireworks. Right. And so it's like when the Chiefs are when the Chiefs are doing miraculous things, miracles happen and any unwinnable game becomes winnable. But the Eagles just 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 systematically mow down possibilities from other teams. I don't know. Is that how you see it? What do you think? I do. I, we agree 100%. They're like, they're like Alabama and Georgia in college. They're a machine. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and Mahomes is banged up and, um, you know, magic has, 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 uh, you know, can't last forever. Um, but process does and Belichick and others have shown us that. And I hate to say it, the Eagles look dastardly. I mean, and their yeah. lines are crushing and uh, they look like, they look like a machine that's just getting hotter, like Alabama and Georgia and so many other college teams we've seen. But I do, I do feel like though, I, I, saying that they're crushing though, like I do feel like they also like 
injure lots of players from other teams. They do. And and they it is a, really hard. They block really well. I mean, you know, people who played and coached and watched, you know, it's blocking and tackling. They block exceptionally well. They're tenacious. They work really well together. I mean, it is when, when a football team is a high functioning machine, it is a machine. It's 11 human beings, you know, 22 on both sides of the ball clicking. And that's what you see. Uh, uh, Georgia was a great example this year in the college side. And, yeah. and, and you saw it coming with, with, with Philly when they look good, they look like that. And I think that's what's coming for Kansas City. This it is joyless, though. There is a certain like. Yes, it's, it's Philly. Of, it's yeah. Philly. Yes, it's very <laughs> joyless. Yes. Yes. I lived in Philly for a while. And in Philly, I first of all, my first day living in Philly, I was like such a I mean, kid. it's the Eagles. I don't mean the city of Philly. I mean, I No, I, like I mean, Philly, Philly and the Eagles are one. I'm sorry. I know, like, but I like Philly. I don't like the Eagles. I love Philly, but there is a menace in Philly that makes it like it, it, it tests you. Day, the, literally, the first day I lived in Philadelphia, I rode my bike to my new job. I chained it up with like all of the different bike locks that I had right outside the front door of my job. And by lunch, my bike was gone. Like, it, <laughs> I didn't even make it. I literally didn't make it to ride my bike home for lunch. Day one. I mean, even the good things about Philly come with a little bit of a kidney punch, which has always been part of the, the joy and wonder of Philly. Like, it's such a great American city. Um, but they make you, they, they you know, they, they are not there to entertain you. They are there to destroy you if you are playing their football team. All right, you got to do sports more. I'm just going to say that to the world. I, I, I mean, like, have you ever been on with the Mannings on Monday Night Football? You need to be. Like, you so need to be because you talk, you know, I, I, I'm getting, you talking football, you talking drinking, you talking anything, but especially when you get cranked up about football, it's fascinating for people. And it's <laughs> I'm fun. I'm still with you. It'll just be my, it'll be all my right. Reichoff only. All right, let Spielberg know. Until then, thank you for all that you do. Thank you for being so generous to me and for visiting on the show. I hope it's not 200 episodes before you come back. All Love the you best back. to you, Love you Paul. and thank you. Stay vigilant. All right, how fun was that? Isn't she amazing? She's great. I mean, she's really great. And she's a helper. We talk about it all the time. The helpers are out there. And Rachel Maddow is truly one of them. Listen to her podcast series, Ultra. Listen to Bagman. Go back and read Drift and read Blowout too. And read, watch, or listen to whatever she's cooking up next. She is truly a thought leader for America who is improving the culture, not just of media, but of this entire country. And she is a very important role model for people of all kinds and backgrounds all around the world. And she is most definitely a helper. Always look for the helpers. There, were, there will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. And go on social media and look for the hashtag, look for the helpers and share yours, share your hope, share your inspiration, share a bit of your joy. Share it by tagging Look for the Helpers on any social media platform, and I'll try to find it. And when you're on social, be sure to find us and play Guess the Guess every Wednesday night. You can follow me or follow Independent Americans on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, and play Guess the Guest every Wednesday night. I will post a mysterious image, and you have to guess who it is. Don't cheat. Now, I have no word yet on this week's contest. 
from our friend Delfino Sanchez down in Texas, who may still be mourning his Cowboys. But this guy is like the Tom Brady of guests to guests. He is truly the GOAT, the greatest of all time. But like Tom Brady, he might also be cheating. Because I really don't understand how Delfino Sanchez guesses all of these things and seems to win every single time, but he does. And my thanks to you, Delfino, and to all you other fans out there all across the internet and all across the universe. Like Delfino, I hope you will visit us at independentamericans.us where you can also support this show by joining our special unit. Join our Patreon community. Be a part of it. Make it better. Make us better. Help support this show and keep us going. Thank you to all of our Patreon members, the most vigilant folks, who are also exclusively going to get some extra special Rachel Maddow content. I asked her to recommend her favorite book, some music she's digging on, and her favorite drink right now. It's special, and it's fun, and it's only for our Patreon members. You can get it if you become one at independentamericans.us. You can watch video or check out the audio, and you get every single show without ads, with no commercials, and sneak previews on this show and all the other ones coming up. So check it out, independentamericans.us, where you can also watch video of every conversation, including this one, and you can get Independent Americans merch, which is cool. You can rep for this unit wherever you are, and... You can show others that America may be more divided than ever, but we at Independent Americans and Righteous Media are working to change that, adding light to contrast the heat of all the other political and news shows. And if you're among the 50% of Americans who are independent, this is your show. If you're a Republican or you're a Democrat and you're not a diehard partisan, you want to find a new unit, this is your show. If you're a concerned American who cares about this gigantic unit that we're all a part of, this country, this is your show. All are welcome. We invite you to join us, be a part of the solution, and be a part of this team. And our independent movement is a part of the solution because we are winning in the clutch like Patrick Mahomes. And we got some good news regarding open primaries and the independent movement, and I have a quick scoreboard update for you. I've told you on this show about the importance of open primaries, primaries where everybody can vote regardless of parties, and how there are attacks underway in states across the country to close open primaries, to disenfranchise independent Americans like me, like you, and like millions of others. And in New Hampshire, there was a piece of legislation called HB 101 that has been defeated in committee. This is a big deal, and our friends at Open Primaries posted an update, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But a New Hampshire House committee last week unanimously recommended that the full House reject a bill that would alter the state's open primaries. It went through 19 to nothing, likely killing this measure. But if it had been enacted, HB 101 would have represented one of the single largest acts of voter suppression in New Hampshire history by automatically disenfranchising 325,000 independent voters, the largest group of voters in the state of New Hampshire. Now, check it out. Only a third of general elections in New Hampshire's House and Senate are even competitive. Many elections, particularly for seats in the House of Representatives, are totally uncontested. That means primary elections are often the defining elections in the state. We've covered it on this show, and our friends at Open Primaries, led by our friend John Opdyke, continue to watchdog it. So follow them, check it out, check the show notes. But understand this. 
There are efforts underway to close primaries across the country, and this represents the worst impulses of rampant hyper-partisanship. They're also requiring states to pay for elections that are private, where only a minority of voters can even participate. Every voter in America must have access to primaries. It guarantees a functioning republic. It's pretty damn basic. And anything else is un-American. But we are far from out of the woods, not by a long shot. There are attacks that are still underway and that are coming to open primaries in Missouri, Tennessee, and Texas, where they've also introduced similar bills. And we're going to track on them there and on half a dozen other states that are trying to close primaries this year. Follow Open Primaries, follow John Update, follow this show, and stay vigilant. I'll keep you updated, and I'll try to be like the Tony Romo of news and politics. Now, Super Bowl's coming up, but unfortunately, I won't be on CBS with Tony Romo, and I won't be on... Fox with the team that has the Super Bowl, and I won't be on Monday Night Football with the Mannings, although I would love to. But I will be on News Nation every Thursday at 11.15 Eastern or so. So check me out in a new weekly segment I've been doing on News Nation with Marnie Hughes. We focus on national security, on Ukraine especially, and sometimes vet stuff and political news of the week. But it's on News Nation. You can find it anywhere or online, and you can tune in every Thursday in the 11 o'clock Eastern hour. I will be there to break down national security, talk about Ukraine, and hopefully we'll continue to expand this segment. And then on some Fridays, I missed last Friday because of breaking news out of Memphis, but almost every Friday, it looks like, at about 8.45-ish p.m. on News Nation, I will be back with Chris Cuomo for his show Cuomo for a segment we call I'll Drink to That. You can check it out on News Nation, where I will raise a glass to some of my favorite stories of the week. We'll have a drink. You can actually call in on television, and we can hang out. So hit me up there. Hit me up on social media. Subscribe to this show. Share and do all the things. And help us build a unit culture in America, our most important unit of all, that is a positive one, and that is an independent one. And so, as I discussed with Rachel, Tom Brady is finally retiring, again. Good morning, guys. I'll get to the point right away. I'm retiring. We're good. I know the process uh, was a pretty big deal last time, so when I woke up this morning, I figured... I just press record, let you guys know first, so I uh, won't be long-winded. You only get one super emotional retirement essay, and I used mine up last year, so I uh, really thank you guys so much to every single one of you for supporting me. He's the best football player we've ever seen, and one of the best athletes. A level of champion and dominance we've only seen maybe from Michael Jordan and Serena Williams. Now, I don't know if Tom Brady's a nice guy, a good husband, or a good dad, but I will say that that's important too, much more than I realized as a younger man. And as great as he is as a player, Brady's no J.J. Watt when it comes to philanthropy, but he's won more games in big spots than anyone I've ever seen, except, of course, for those two gigantic ones against the Giants. Ask Rachel Maddow about that. But congrats, most of all, to the Pats fans 
on a legendary run. You're great fans, and you deserve it. And to all the families, coaches, players, teammates that made Tom Brady's success possible. Because even Tom Brady would be the first to admit that football is the ultimate team game. But so is life. And so is America. Especially right now. And football in the Super Bowl is one of those few shared experiences that can actually bring us all together. There's not much left anymore. Big sports events, weather disasters, the World Cup elections, not much else. But the Super Bowl does unite America. Except for Eagles and Giants fans. That'll never happen, so go Chiefs. But we'll all be united in the experience. And that's a good thing. My kids, my little boys, have been united and excited throughout the last year of sports. Around F1, around baseball and Aaron Judge, around the World Cup, around, yes, BattleBots, and of course, around football. But it's not the only thing they're united and excited about. They're excited about Pokemon and Legos and Transformers and chess, yes, really, ice cream, of course, and annoyingly happy and sometimes mind-numbing kids' songs, like this one. Oh, I'm a gummy bear. Yes, I'm a gummy bear. Oh, I'm a yummy, tummy, funny, lucky gummy bear. I'm a jelly bear. Yep, it's non-stop in my house, and I'm still recovering from COVID. So, if it's already stuck in your head, I'm sorry. But it makes my little boys dance. It brings them joy, and therefore it brings me joy, and maybe it'll bring you a little joy too. Like this conversation with Rachel. I hope it brought you joy. And if it did, please share it far and wide. And stay vigilant, my friend. Because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And no, you're not alone in your vigilance. We are all vigilant. We're all in one unit. And we're all in this together. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thank you for listening. Down with Putin. Slava Ukraine. Go Chiefs! And stay vigilant, America. Powered by Righteous Media.